Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. Great to have you here again this week. Philip, I've got a question for you. Did you ever read Roald Dahl books to your kids? No, I didn't. Helen did most of the reading of books to the children rather than me, but even then, uh, Roald Dahl wasn't uh, high on our reading list. Oh, we loved Roald Dahl. We used to read Fantastic Mr Fox, and our special favourite was The Twits, uh, which is the story of a really revolting old couple who are mean and bitter towards each other and everyone and who get theirs in the end. So, um, we a morality tale. <laughs> it was a morality tale, interestingly. And later in this episode, we're going to talk about Roald Dahl and morality. I suppose you can't have a, mor- a moral tale without some degree of immorality. Well, that's true. That's true. Let's not jump in too quickly. We'll come back to this in a second and talk about the current trend towards sanitising literature and the arts in the names of morality. But we'll come back to that. Firstly, I just want to pick up a question that came in in relation to one of our previous episodes. Uh, Ben writes about this. He says, I'm wondering exactly what Philip meant when he said in one of our earlier editions, well, if you're a Christian, that's a problem because we don't believe in careers. We want to help people get jobs, not train people for careers. So, Philip, you were saying that Christians don't believe in careers. And Ben asks, well, what's the problem with a career? I believe that you can place too much importance on your career, putting it above God. Perhaps it's a misunderstanding of definition on my part, but I think of a career as a job or combination of jobs that make up your working life. And so he's asking, what do you mean by Christians don't have careers? Yeah, thanks, Ben, for asking and uh, coming back on the subject. In, in some sense, it's it's a definitional issue. That is, Ben is defining career from the past, where most people talk of the career from the future. I mean, there is a career. I look back over my years and see what has taken place, how how my life has careered, what trajectory it has followed. And so, yes, of course, we believe there are careers that people have followed. But most people are talking about your career when it's at the beginning. The universities are having no longer open days, but careers days. And we have careers advisors at school. Well, they're talking about the future. So when you look into Common Dictionary, it says an occupation undertaken for a significant period of a person's life and with opportunities for progress. That is, it shifts the focus from love, where we work for our contribution to society and receive reward for the work we do, to my progress in finding life, in finding myself. And so careers move us to self-importance, self-fulfillment, self-meaning. It's finding what I am going to do with my life to make my life successful. Well, these, these are not particularly Christian values and virtues, but more than that, they don't actually reflect what the Bible teaches about work. So when Paul wants to encourage people to go to work, you find in 2 Thessalonians 3 a doctrine of why people should work And it's much more prosaic than self-fulfillment or careerism. It's so that you can be fed, so that you won't be a burden to other people, so that you will not be idle and wasting your time. It's Work is about a job. It's about doing work for the good of others. Now, don't mishear me as to think that's in any way bad. I think it's a wonderful thing. To love my neighbour by doing an honest day's work is a magnificent thing for a Christian to do. But I do it for the social welfare. 
I do it for my contribution to society. I do it for rather than to find some success in my own life and or fulfilment in myself. It's almost about the project that is my life. You know, you look forward and you think I've I've got this kind of plan mapped out in front of me and I'm going to develop myself and I'm going to take these different moves and my aim is to get to here and it's kind of like this dream you have of how your life is going to unfold and kind of the project that is my life. Um, whereas the project that is the Christian's life is to love neighbour and love God. It's to think, how could I grow and develop? What moves could I make next in order to become a more loving and well-equipped and knowledgeable and skillful servant of God and of others? It's yes. In a sense, the Christian has a career. It's just a career to serve Christ. Yes, you think is, what work can I do now that would be most helpful to other people? Which is a very different value system. If you want to take the word career and look back, yes, this is what my career has been. But that's not the context in which I was using it. Terrific. Uh, thanks, Philip. And thanks again, Ben, for the question. Really, really helpful. Another few questions came in during the last week or two, especially in relation to the post we did about the public square. Um, and there were some really excellent questions there, such good ones, in fact, that I don't think we can deal with them just in a brief question time at the beginning of this episode. We're going to come back to them perhaps next week if we can get ourselves organised. Questions about what our demeanour or attitude or disposition should be as we speak publicly, um, particularly questions about the status of human desires. Uh, we talked about the deepest longings of people and we talked about how they were really towards sin, that our deepest desires are sinful. But is that the case? Do we, in fact, have some um, God-given deep desires for the good things of God and to know God that in some way we can build on? What is the status of human desire? There were some questions about that. Um, and then again, also, there were some questions about the place of persuasion. We talked about the open statement of the truth and that our approach should be to just speak the truth, not try to build on where people are at and so on. Does that mean we just kind of go around blurting the truth in kind of gobbets on people? Um, don't we ever have an argument or reason or persuade? So there's that question as well. But these are all massive issues. We're going to come back to those. I'm sure you have thoughts, but we think we're going to come back to those next week. Hello. Today, I want to move on to something, as we said, I've flagged already, uh, that in a sense follows on from our discussion on the public square. Um, in a sense, the myth that the public square should be a free and open place where everyone gets to say exactly what they want and write exactly what they want, well, it's never really been that way and it still isn't. And one fascinating and, to my mind, quite amusing recent example is the move that most of you will have heard of to censor or sanitise the literary works of Roald Dahl to remove offensive descriptions of people being fat, for example, or ugly, uh, and generally to make the, the works conform to what the sensitivity readers, it's the people are called who are doing this work, which is a kind of an Orwellian sort of description, I think, of these people sitting there in rooms trying to think who's going to be offended by these sentences. In other words, bowdlerizing is back. And we're going to talk about bowdlerizing today. And if you haven't heard about bowdlerizing and Dr. Bowdler, uh, we'll fill you in on who that is in just a moment. But this latest move, Philip, to sanitise Roald Dahl is really just the latest in a whole series of these kinds of 
moves on the part of the current moral majority, if I can put it that way. Yes. Well, it goes back a long ways. There's a long history of people doing it. Of recent times, of course, in children's literature, there's Enid Blyton came into terrible uh, attacks some years ago and people removing her books from school libraries and the like and trying to change those words. And I've noticed it's not just children's books. Ian Fleming's books have undergone quite some change uh, the the James Bond things have all changed and of course the last James Bond movie that's just come out James Bond's no longer recognisable he's, he's not really James Bond he's a sensitive new age man yes it's, it's, <laughs> James Bond is not my favourite person to no. read it's not I'm wanting to approve of him but if you're going to have him have him don't try to change him into something that Ian Fleming never would have recognised it's an absurd movie. Those of you who don't know this, Ian Fleming, the original author of the James Bond novels. In case you're not sure who Ian Fleming is, he wrote James Bond. And the, the James if Bond of wasn't his, James Bond himself. Yeah. The James <laughs> Bond of his books was cool, distant, probably was a misogynist in the sense that he had a very... He was a chauvinistic pig. Yeah, that's pretty much who he was. <laughs> but that's what he was. Yeah. For better or for worse, that's who you're having described and... Uh, ridiculous shows in terms of the violence and the gadgetry and all the rest of it, but it was a cartoon character in many ways. But no longer can that kind of person be acceptable. So the books themselves are being sanitised and the latest versions of the film, which were not written by him, unrecognisable. You can say, well, this isn't wonderful. The man's evolved. And I think, no. He didn't evolve. He no longer exists. But Roald Dahl, some, that literature, I never liked personally. That's just my taste, your taste. Uh, you know, people can have different taste. I, it wasn't written for an, a man. It was written for children. The children loved it. Would I be saying, oh, every child should see this? No. But the idea that you can sanitise things goes back a long way. Thomas Jefferson sanitise the Bible or the New Testament, removing every reference to supernaturalism. In fact, in the second century, Marcion removed every reference to Judaism, which is very clever when you're actually reading a Jewish book like the Bible. The idea that you could change the story, change the way it's expressed. But Christians have been sanitised for years. So Heidi is a very Christian children's book but not in the hands of filmmakers and Walt Disney and the like. The Christianity is just left out. But that's true in Wikipedia, I notice. The Christian elements of certain people, like, say, Rosa Parks, are just left out of the historical account. They're of no interest. Uh, uh, that there was a movie, Unbroken, which did refer to the fact the man was converted through uh, the Billy Graham Crusades, but it was de-Christianised. Yeah. So was the life story of Johnny Cash in his in that movie yeah. uh, Walk the Line. Yes. Um, there was a brief mention. There's this kind of illusion that he went to church with June. There, June Carter. There was some just very brief reference to it. But the fact that it fundamentally changed his life and his outlook, and then completely changed the whole nature of his of his output, of his singing, of his songs, of everything that was completely sanitized, as it were. That was yeah. completely uh, censored. Jane Eyre, you never get the Christian element of Jane Eyre's decisions uh, being shown. I mean, there's any number of these kinds of removal of Christian elements to things. It, censorship. It is. In a way, what was 
confounding and almost amusing for me as a Christian in the recent Roald Dahl kind of fiasco. And it's kind of is a fiasco, of course, now because Penguin Random House have now backflipped and decided (laughs) to publish the original editions as classics because they saw that as soon as they said they were going to change them, people rushed. They flocked to the stores to buy up all the existing copies. Made Roald Dahl famous and popular again. Yeah, more people are going to read that offensive literature now than ever before. So it was amusing in one sort of sense because... Efforts at that kind of sanitization almost are inherently a bit laughable. And it kind of also is amusing because it's the very thing that we Christians once tried to do. And if we go back to, to Bowdlerism, and I'll get you to talk about Dr. Bowdler in a minute, it's, it's just how much the worm has turned, how much things have changed. There was a point where Christians were laughed at for trying to sanitize literature in order to make it more morally acceptable. Now it's the sort of woke left. It's the it's the secular humanists and postmodernists who are seeking to sanitise literature so as to make it morally acceptable. Yeah, it's it is Bowdlerism. It is Bowdlerism, which hasn't been mentioned for some time, as best I can remember. Bowdler lived at the end of the eighteenth of the first half of the first quarter of the nineteenth century. Uh, he was a doctor um, who didn't like practicing medicine. After a while, uh, had some bad experiences, but. Uh, he went through Shakespeare, for example, all the Shakespeare plays. They removed all the objectionable people. He, he made it acceptable for family kind of values. He started to uh, do the Old Testament, went through the Old Testament. But he well, there's had, some chapters you'd get rid of there. Yes, yes. You just don't refer to these things because they would offend people, would upset people, would not be able to be read to children, etc. And he became, although he is pre-Victorian in a sense because he died before Victoria became queen, he became the epitome of Victorian stupidity, the desire for public morality at the extreme and silly end. And so, you know, in the 20th century, uh, to say something was bowdlerized was to say that it had been destroyed, it had been wrecked, it was no longer. And the whole concept of being able to sanitise literature was laughed at because it was Victorian, a.k.a. Christian. It was the kind of fussy, moralising, kind of um, censorious approach to public life that yes. tried to... Well, the, the fun story that was told, which actually when checked historically never happened, was people uh, covering the legs of pianos because they were too shapely. They reminded us too much of the ankles of women, so yes. we had to put Cover. covers over piano leagues. I think that was a... Which uh, actually didn't happen. No. But it was the send-up of how stupid the kind of Victorian sensitivities became. But now, interestingly, it's the secular humanists, or the more radical secular humanists, who are finding themselves in the same kind of stupidity, in a sense, of trying to think that by by removing the words fat or ugly... Uh, or other sorts of words from literature, that somehow you can remove the concepts of fatness or ugliness from the world, and that somehow you can scold people into a a more moral viewpoint. Yes, and it's not going to work, and it's possibly not a right thing to do anyway. But the sensitivities, you've got issues of how to listen. We'll come to those later. But the first issue perhaps to talk about is moralism, because in a sense it's a modern moralism that tries to find its way towards public virtue through 
criticising certain vices or trying to ban certain things? Well, this, like you said, there's several problems. One is that listening, which we'll do later. But with moralism, it's negative rather than positive. It believes in education as something that can bring about real change. But it also, it's the choice of which morals that we're going to go with. That there's a sense in which if it is modern, it's good. But if it's in a previous generation, it's bad. And then there's the total contradiction, the total stupidities of, you see... We're all for multiculturalism, but not if multiculturalism means someone's going to get offended by somebody else's culture. Well, <laughs> that's never going to work. That's certainly, a ridiculous it certainly notion. hasn't worked. I mean, are, you, are they suggesting that the satanic verses should be bowdlerized so as not to be offensive to Muslims? Yes, I think that would be a logical outcome of this kind of argument, wouldn't it? Or that pretty much every piece of popular culture I've, re- I've listened to or consumed in the last 20 years should be bowdlerized in order to be not offensive to Christians because the number of, of TV shows and books that in some way do not disparage or marginalise or directly criticise Christianity and the gospel um, are in the absolute minority. And the number of occasions in which Christ or God is blasphemed routinely. As, as a sensitive Christian, I am deeply offended whenever I have the name of Jesus Christ used in abusive language. Now, previous generations, it was called blasphemy. We've done away with the blasphemy laws. We're now into sensitivity rules. Okay, I am sensitive. Is someone going to now start removing all blasphemies again? I'm sorry, it didn't work then. It was a mistake in those days. And you may change which blasphemies you're going to remove, but it's not going to make any... It doesn't work. And that's because moralism doesn't work at a deep level. It doesn't work. Why doesn't moralism work? Well, who makes the choice of what's right and wrong? There's the starting point. You move from there to... If it's imposed, then it hasn't changed the human heart. And you need to change the human heart. You can, you can repress, you can suppress the kinds of public exhibitions, but you haven't actually solved the problem at all because in the privacy of people's own homes, they're saying the very things that they're not allowed to say out publicly. And they're thinking the very thoughts that uh, you have said they're not allowed to be thinking. So it never actually works. But then it's always, moralism is always negative. It's always about what you shall not. It's not about what you shall, because it's very hard to be able to establish the person has loved their neighbour as themselves. And moralism is good in kind of giving you a sense that there is justice and punishment, although we don't have punishment, now we have shame, or maybe that's the punishment, but it's no good at mercy and forgiveness and pardon. So there's no sense of pardon and forgiveness that doesn't turn out to be acceptance of immorality. We can't accept immorality. So certain people are said to be immoral and beyond redemption, really. So Mr. Dahl expressed racist thoughts. He was anti-Semitic. So we're not going to read his children's books because he was anti-Semitic. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, as a Christian, can't be anti-Semitic. My God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was and is Jewish. So there's no way I'm going to be anti-Semitic. But am I not going to read a funny story because the man who told it was anti-Semitic? That's a choice. Moralism never really comes to terms with just how deep and pervasive the problem of sin is in the human heart. 
That's right. Nor with, therefore, what possibility there might be for atonement or redemption or change. Yeah, all those things. And, and the heroes of the past, we, we think, you know, the statues of people, the great paintings, the great people. If you care to dig around, every one of them has, public, has, has sinfulness in their lives. You know, you're not going to meet the person other than the Lord Jesus who was without sin. And so once you find Mr. Rhodes did bad things, you take his statue down. But whose statue are you going to put up in this place? You know, Rousseau? He's a dreadful man. You know, read the book by uh, uh, Paul Johnson. Is it Paul Johnson? Mm, the Intellectuals. The Intellectuals. And On just, just how revolting the great intellectuals of the 20th century really were. Every one of them. In their private lives. That's right. I see people walk around with Che Guevara shirts on. And I always want to say to them, have you ever actually checked out what Shay did? You might as well walk around with a Stalin shirt or, yes. or, or a Hitler shirt. Like yeah. he, was a, he was a dreadful man. He was a dreadful man. Mm. And he so, did terrible things. Yes, and everyone has their, has their sinfulness. And the irony is, of course, that um, we're going to put our own statues up now. We're going to say that we are the virtuous ones who now understand just how terrible Mr. Rhodes was. Um, <laughs> yes. Who's going to come for us in 10 or 15 or 20 years' time? Because if, if this is the standard, that is that whatever current cultural fad of sensitivity uh, is the standard of morality by which you are shamed and sanitised and censored uh, and declared beyond the pale, then it will be us tomorrow in, mm. uh, in some form or other. Of course. Which brings us to the question of sort of sensitivity and our sensitivity to what we read. And I think it's related to the question of sinfulness and the universality of sinfulness. We, we read things that are challenging to us, that might offend us, but how do we read them without being wrongly or unduly offended? Yeah, that is the difficulty. And it's a difficulty for the speaker too. You, you take generalisations... A good generalisation is generally true. But the trouble with generalisations is they can be turned into stereotypes where instead of saying, on the whole, people are X, you say, this person's a person, therefore he must be X. And so you now then uh, punish, remove, discriminate against whatever it might be on the basis of a generalisation. But to remove generalisations from public discourse means that you don't actually see what the world is like. You don't face the realities of the vast majority of men are taller than women. That doesn't mean this man is taller than that woman. But when you come to design motor cars, you need to design motor cars or seats differently for men than you do for women. Design them all for men and women are uncomfortable. Design them all for women, men are uncomfortable. You've got to allow for differences in all kinds of things which just a matter of facing the facts of realities of life. When generalisations are said, when people are making observations about life, if you don't particularly fit that generalisation, you can feel offended. Well, if it was put forward as a stereotype, maybe you should. But if it's just put forward as a generalisation, you should be able to say, that doesn't apply to me. No big deal. I know of a divorce situation where a young girl heard the statistics of the damage that is done by divorce, how the children of divorce 
suffer educationally depriva- deprivation, job deprivation, they have increased drug abuse, they have unstable marriages, and so it goes on. You look at the statistics of divorce, it's bad for children uh, in almost every facet of life that you care to mention. And when the speaker had finished this, this young woman turned to her father and says, well, that puts my life down the toilet, doesn't it? She was right in the sense that there was no grace in the speaker. There was no generosity. There was no saying, but it's not true of every particular individual in the divorce situation. It's just generally true. 90% of the time it's true, but you could be one of the 10%. Because there was no inclusion of that, she felt that she was just being rubbished completely. However, if you've got to put in every qualification for every generalisation, our communication of information is very seriously handicapped. It's also true that in fiction uh, and in ultra with similar cultural products, they, they speak about the general by speaking about the specific. So Roald Dahl's writing a story, for example, or Ian Fleming is writing a novel... Um, or anybody who's writing any kind of fictional work, it's not a set of generalisations. It's a particular story about a particular person, about the twits, who are a particularly rotten and disgusting couple and all that they do. And you read that particular story, and if it's well done, it connects in some way to the truth of how the world is and how you experience the world, and as the story unfolds, you enjoy the story, you sometimes enjoy the humour of the story in the case of the twits and the ever more outlandish ways that the husband and wife play tricks on each other and so on. But if it's a well-told piece of fiction, it connects in some way to the reality of the world as you experience it and kind of enriches your understanding and you recognise in the story something that is true, that can be true, is sometimes true, might be true at various people. Um, but that's the nature of, of fiction. It's not a blanket condemnation of all people with beards or a blanket blanket condemnation of all overweight people or a, no. there's a there's a misunderstanding of the nature of the of, of how fiction functions and how those kinds of things function as well it seems to me yes and also of history so in a previous generation they used this word i now see that's a fairly offensive word to use well there's no point removing it How will I know that it was offensive if it's never there? How will I know that society has changed if every reference to its historical usage is removed? How will I know why people have... It's there. What was said in the 19th century, the way it was said, is unpleasant. If you don't like it, then like with me and Roald Dahl, don't read it. That's a simple enough solution. But to remove it from the history books is to distort reality it's also to remove the possibility of the past speaking to the present yes because one of the great things about reading old books and i i like to read old books is that although at times they're strangely expressed they they say things in a way that's different sometimes it's odd sometimes it's offensive but often it's just different Mm. and you think wow why did they say it like that i Mm. haven't heard that expression or even that metaphor for describing that aspect of life as a metaphor i that i haven't heard because it hasn't been used for a 100 years but it says something about that reality that it's talking about that i might not have ever thought of had i not read it and it might reveal a truth to me as well that's right and if you're a sensitive person whose name happens to be bowdler you know the fact that there is this thing called bowdlerism and to bowdlerize 
must be deeply hurt and painful to you because of your family background. Why do I have to be persecuted like this? No. (laughs) When it comes to listening, it's important that we take things to heart. As Jesus kept on saying, let he who has ears to hear, let him listen to what the word of God says. It's important that we do take it to heart. But it's important that we also, at the same time, evaluate it for what it is, the statement of the truth or the misstatement because it's not true. But to move immediately to the postmodern world where I only take offence, I only listen to it from the point of view of myself, or to accept the old modern world where I can say things and it's not going to affect, offend anybody, seems to miss out both ways. The Christian world has the view that we can speak the truth in love because we know of the true forgiveness of sins through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I need to listen about sin so that I will repent. But I can listen about sin because I know I can be forgiven, whatever it may be. I guess if you don't know there is such a thing as forgiveness, it's pretty hard to listen to how sinful you are. And so it's better to shoot the messenger than listen to the message. But it's really important that we, as listeners, hear the truth of our own sinfulness and not shoot the messenger. It relates a little bit to what we said a couple of weeks ago about listening with a trembling and contrite heart uh, to the scripture and to anybody for that matter, um, to come to people's communication with a willingness to hear and repent, uh, with a willingness to say, I think you're wrong and to call on you to repent if that's Mm. the case, but to come with um, an understanding of my own profound failings and sinfulness uh, and a willingness on the basis that forgiveness is possible and is made possible through Christ to change and to repent. Uh, Philip, we've talked now about listening and how we come to other people's words, to texts, to sermons, or for that matter, to children's books that we read and how we we come to them and our posture towards them, as it were. But what about when we're the ones who are speaking? How can we speak in a way that's not moralistic like this? Well, take the worst of all issues to preach on the subject of hell. I was told many years ago, and uh, it's true, I'm sure, that we should not speak on hell without tears. Because as we speak on hell, we should be concerned for the lost. God does not desire the death of a sinner, but they repent and live. So I mustn't preach on hell in joy that it exists, but in great sorrow that the hearer may be lost. And so I always preach, I'm always to preach hell with tears. But I also have tears for the Lord Jesus Christ's death. For it is because of my sinfulness that would lead me to hell that the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure the cross for me. And so my tears in preaching on hell are not only for the lost, but also for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that gives me a third set of tears to preach on when preaching on hell. That is for the joy of knowing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all is not lost. In fact, forgiveness is available and forgiveness is available to me. 
And so as preachers, yes, our sensitivity is heightened when we come to the subjects of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to an appalling subject like hell, we mustn't preach it indifferently. We must preach it passionately. And would this be true too when we speak about moral issues, issues in which we want to critique society or critique uh, the trends of wickedness or, or particularly to call on people to repent from wickedness? It's not done in a spirit of anger or denunciation or a spirit of triumph. Or superiority. Indeed. There but for the grace of God go I. There is no sin that anybody has ever done that I am incapable of doing. Given the opportunity. Given the opportunities, the forces. that you, You've got to understand your own sinfulness and the capacity that we have, the endless capacity for doing the wrong thing. Unless I understand that of myself, I can not really preach the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. With tears. With tears. That's a good point at which to finish, I think, Philip. And it also, I think, sets us up and prepares us for our next discussion about our demeanour towards the world as we speak to the world and uh, how we relate to to the public square and how we preach in public and so on. But we'll come back to that in the next week or so. Thanks again for those thoughts, and thanks for being with us today on Two Ways News. As always, we're really grateful for um, for your presence and for your support and for your emails and interchange. Please keep sending us your comments and questions. They keep coming in, and uh, we'll keep addressing as many of them as we can uh, here on the episode each week. Uh, but in today's episode is, is in all of them, Philip. We do need to pray. And so, how about you lead us in prayer? How about I lead us in prayer about these things today? Mm. Heavenly Father, such is the nature of our our flawed and sinful selves that we so quickly leap to a position of superiority or to moralism. We think that the truth and morality and goodness of the world can somehow be established on our own terms, perhaps if we scold or criticise people into being the way we want them to be. We sometimes lament, Father, as we look in our society and the trends within our culture, of just how far gone our culture is from a trust in you and in the Lord Jesus and his saving work. But help us, Father, as we preach that saving work, as we preach the evils of immorality and the dangers of hell, and as we preach the wonderful atoning grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation and the work of your Spirit to change our hearts, that we do it with tears, Father, tears for the plight of the lost, tears for how much you've done for us in the Lord Jesus and the sacrifice he made, and tears of joy for all that you've done in our hearts to bring us to know you and to love you. And all this, Father, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.